And well, we've, we've met Nebuchadnezzar several times in the book of Daniel. We met him in chapter 1, in chapter 2, in chapter 3. And we're going to watch Nebuchadnezzar get humbled again in chapter 4. And you might be asking, after we study chapter 4, how many times does it take for a man to get it that heaven rules? I don't know. How many times has it taken for you? How many things has God had to show you? How many miracles? How many little things and big things? How many little fingerprints uh, have you seen on your life until finally you said, Uncle, Uncle, Auntie, I submit. I surrender. And even after we've sung the song, maybe with some hesitation, I surrender all, did you really? <laughs> maybe the song should be changed. I surrender some. I surrender some. <laughs> maybe that would be more honest. Well, Nebuchadnezzar had a dream in chapter 2, and none of his uh, wise guys could interpret it, but he made it a little bit more difficult. He wouldn't even tell them the dream. And he was going to kill all of them, and then Daniel was able to tell him the dream and the interpretation. And, and Nebuchadnezzar lauded the God of Israel, lauded the God of heaven. But uh, even though he was told in that dream, you are the head of gold, and there's going to be this rock cut without hands, that will smash the statue that you saw in the dream. Nebuchadnezzar wanted to fight the implications of the dream. So in the next chapter, he raises up this incredible, colossal golden image, 90 feet tall, sets it in the plain of Dura and demands worship. And the whole thing's made of gold. And maybe the message is, I know what that dream means, but I, I'm gonna not only going to be the head of gold, I'm going to be the chest and arms, I'm going to be the belly and thighs, I'm going to be the feet and the legs, I'm going to be it all. And I don't want that rock to come and smash my kingdom. I want, I used, I, people, you said, your prophet said, I'm the king of kings. So I don't want this to end. And Nebuchadnezzar demanded that everybody fall down and worship that image when the band began to play. A mass of humanity, but three Hebrew servants of the Most High God refused to bow. We know how the story ends. If you were with us last Wednesday, they were thrown into the fire. The, the best of Nebuchadnezzar's army were, were perished in the intense heat. They fell into the fire, but there was a fourth walking in the midst of the fire, and to quote Veggie Tales, he's real shiny. Hey, boss. Hey, boss. Didn't we throw three guys in there? But there's a fourth. Well, Nebuchadnezzar again is in awe of God and seems to laud and even maybe worship the God of heaven. From chapter 3 to chapter 4, we don't know how much time has gone by. The Bible does not tell us here. There are some students of Scripture that believe that years have gone by. And Nebuchadnezzar once again has forgotten who God is or who actually is God. Remember early on when we met Nebuchadnezzar, he had taken the, the uh, vessels of the temple and put them in the temple of his God, in essence saying, my God's stronger than your God. And God's been convincing him all along that that's not the case. God was the one that had given Israel into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar. And God is the one who puts rulers up and puts them down. And so we're about to see another humiliating experience for Nebuchadnezzar. But his eyes will be opened. And Nebuchadnezzar is going to live the verse that we learned on Sunday mornings in James 4, 6. God is opposed to the proud, but he gives what? He gives grace to the humble. If you want God to oppose you, remain prideful. And he will get himself in battle array and he will oppose you. I would say that's a losing proposition. If you want grace, if you want the wind at your back, if you want God to bless your life, then the formula is quite simple, but it can be difficult. Humble yourself under his mighty hand and he will exalt you at the proper time. Nebuchadnezzar had been exalted by God, but he tried to exalt himself above God, and you can't do that. And there was an angel who tried to do that. I will make myself like, and we're going to run into this phrase, uh, this descriptor of God, like the most high God, right? No, you won't, Satan. You will be thrown down. Anybody who tries to raise themselves up above God is in deep trouble. They are going to be opposed by God. 
And so Nebuchadnezzar is going to learn the hard way. This is the last that we will hear from Nebuchadnezzar in the book of Daniel. We will hear about uh, a couple of different kings, Belshazzar and Darius, in the coming chapters. Nebuchadnezzar, uh, we're going to have the last word from him at the end of chapter 4. And he's going to learn the hard way. During the Great Awakening, when the Spirit of God revived much of our nation's early faith, Jonathan Edwards was presiding over a massive prayer meeting. 800 men prayed with him. Into that meeting, uh, a woman sent a message asking the men to pray for her husband. The note described a man who had become unloving, prideful, and difficult. Edwards read the message in private and then thinking that perhaps the man described was present made a bold request. Edwards read the note to the 800 men. Then he asked if the man who had been described in the note would raise his hand so that the whole assembly could pray for him. 300 men raised their hands. They, those 300 men and probably maybe several hundred more could have said that night at that prayer meeting, that note was about me. I've become unloving. I've become difficult. I've become prideful. God has a way of dealing with pride. He has a way of bringing us to our knees. In Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis called pride the great sin. Pride in its fullness attempts to elevate self above everything. Get this. Including God. If you want a definition of what pride it really is, pride is an elevation of self even above God. And it can be sneaky how we execute that pride. Because we can use little loopholes or we can say, oh, that scripture doesn't really apply to me or I, I see that one differently. In my case, you ever said that before? And I think I'm the special one. I think there's special circumstances. I think there's some fine print for me. Not for other people, right? And maybe Nebuchadnezzar felt that he was in that position. So here's what Lewis goes on to say in Mere Christianity. In God, you come up against something which is in every respect immeasurably superior to yourself. Unless you know God as that, and therefore know yourself as nothing in comparison, you do not know God at all. As long as you are proud, you cannot know God. A proud man is always looking down on things and people. And of course, as long as you are looking down, you cannot see something above you. Close quote. And so I've been sharing with you in the Hebrew picture language, the idea of humility means to get low so you can look up at others and especially at God so that you can become a servant so that you can see yourself in the proper way. So you don't think of yourself more highly than you ought to think. And it can be, pride can be a very sneaky thing. Sometimes just when we think, you know, it's not a problem for us, it can become a problem. The psalmist writes these words in Psalm 97. The Lord reigns, let the earth rejoice, let many islands be glad. Clouds and thick darkness surround him. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. It says in verse 7, same chapter, Let all those be ashamed who serve graven images, who boast themselves of idols. Worship him, all you gods. Zion heard this and was glad. The daughters of Judah have rejoiced because of thy judgments, O Lord. For thou art the Lord most high over all the earth. Thou art exalted above all gods. And it ends, Psalm 97, with, Be glad in the Lord, you righteous ones. Give thanks to his holy name. So what we're going to have in chapter 4 of Daniel is an autobiographical record from the king of Babylon about something that happened to him and how he experienced God in his life. Each of you has a story about how the Most High God has showed you His glory. Maybe He's had to bring you low, maybe multiple times, to get you to look up. Somebody once said that when you're on a sick bed, maybe that's not the worst thing in the world, because when you're on your back, there's only one way to look, and that's up. And so often God will use moments like that where we're trying to control everything, where we're, we're trying to fight God, 
And he will say, stop. Just let me have my way. We fight this. 1 John 2.16 says, All that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lustful, lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. It goes on to say, And the world is passing away, and also its lusts. These are the things that the world feeds. The lust of our eyes, the lust of the flesh, the boastful pride of life. The world system feeds those things. And so here's Nebuchadnezzar's record. His transparency is remarkable. His honesty in this record is incredible. It's very telling. When someone has been humbled by God, they all of a sudden become more transparent, less guarded, more willing to say, hey, let me tell you who I really am. There was a time that I was doing this or that. There was a season in my life and this or that happened. And they're not afraid to tell you how God humbled them. It, it, it's kind of a sign when you're making some progress, when you become a little bit transparent or maybe a lot transparent about your own foibles and weaknesses. In fact, there's a certain freedom to it. Do you know why? Because if you can learn to laugh at yourself a little bit, and learn to admit that you're human and you make mistakes and you're imperfect, all of a sudden you don't have to try to fool people anymore. Have you been trying to fool people about who you are? I'm strong. I can do it. I can leap tall buildings in a single bound. <laughs> Rip up in your shirt. I'm super Christian. Here's what Nebuchadnezzar says. Nebuchadnezzar Daniel 4, verse 1. The king to all the peoples. Now remember how much influence this world empire has at this time. This is the world empire ruling. It's the United States of the day, but maybe even more significant and dominant. Nebuchadnezzar the king to all the peoples, nations, men of every language that live in all the earth. May your peace abound. This is a unique moment in scripture where we get an autobiographical record as I mentioned it has seemed good to me to declare the signs and wonders which the most high God has done or performed for me how great are his signs and how mighty are his wonders his kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and his dominion is from generation to generation what does Nebuchadnezzar sound like there he sounds like a Christian doesn't he he sounds like a worshiper of the Most High God. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house. I was flourishing in my palace. If you have a NIV, it says I was contented and prosperous. Let me park for a second. Sometimes we get the notion that when we meet an unbeliever, they must be miserable. So you go out and you try to witness to a co-worker or a friend who doesn't know the Lord, and you say something like this. Aren't you just miserable without the Lord? And they say something like this. No, I'm having a good time. And you're like, what? Do you have a drug problem? Nope. <laughs> Do you have a problem with pornography? Nope. I'm married. I have 2.5 children, a dog named Spot. A good career. I'm a solid citizen. Oh, maybe they don't need the Lord after all. You see, sometimes we think that sinners are just miserable. No, some people, many people, are content in their sin. They're content sometimes just living on their own until, of course, something happens. I saw a dream. I was contented, prosperous, and I saw a dream, and it made me fearful. These fantasies as I lay on my bed and the visions in my mind kept alarming me. You have an NIV. It says, the thoughts on my bed... And visions of my head troubled me. So I gave orders to bring into my presence all the wise men of Babylon. Now you would have thought that he would have just sent directly for Daniel. <laughs> Hadn't he learned by now that these guys are not very good at their job? That they might make known to me the interpretation of the dream. Sounds familiar, but this, is, this time he's going to tell the dream and it's a different dream. Then the magicians, the conjurers, verse 7, the Chaldeans, the diviners came in. I related the dream to them, but they could not make its interpretation known to me. Now, when you hear the dream, you're going to kind of wonder, did these guys take 
Dream Interpretation 101 or not. The dream does not seem terribly complicated, but maybe they were kind of afraid to tell him what the dream could mean or what they thought it meant. So finally, he says, but finally Daniel came in before me, whose name is Belteshazzar, that was his Babylonian name, given to him according to the name of my God. And in whom is the spirit of the holy gods? If you have a New King James, it says the spirit of the holy God. And there is a debate whether it should be spirit of the holy gods, as in maybe a pagan's point of view, or the spirit of the holy God. There's a text note in the MacArthur Study Bible where he's convinced that the New King James has it right, and it's the spirit of the holy God, because why would Nebuchadnezzar say the spirit of the holy gods? Because that's not how they necessarily looked at their gods, and there's an argument to be made there. Whichever is correct, it's still coming from a pagan king. He just knew this. He knew Daniel had insight. He knew there was something supernatural in him, and so he related the dream to Daniel. He said, O Belteshazzar, chief of the magicians, because remember Daniel had been raised up because of his abilities by God. Since I know that the spirit of the holy gods or the spirit of the holy God is in you and no mystery baffles you, tell me the visions of my dream which I have seen along with its interpretation. Now these were the visions in my mind as I lay on my bed. There's Nebuchadnezzar sharing with Daniel. I was looking and behold there was a tree in the midst of the earth. Its height was great or enormous. It was tall and proud. The tree, eleven, grew large and became strong. Its height reached the sky, and it was visible to the end of the whole earth. Its foliage was beautiful, its fruit abundant. Now this is his dream. And in it was food for all. The beasts of the field found shade under it. The birds of the sky dwelt in its branches and all living creatures fed themselves from it. Now, this is an incredible tree. It's tall, majestic, abundant, fruitful, supplying the needs of so many. In Scripture, take note of this, students, of Scripture. The, a tree can represent a man. He will be, Psalm 1, like a tree firmly planted by streams of water. It can represent a nation. You can note Ezekiel chapter 31, verses 3 through 14. And a tree in Romans 11, Paul uses the olive tree to represent Israel and then Gentiles grafted into the olive tree. In this passage, the tree is Nebuchadnezzar. I was looking in the visions 13 in my mind as I lay on my bed, and behold, an angelic watcher, a holy one, an angel, if you will, descended from heaven... And he shouted out, and he spoke as follows. Chop down the tree and cut off its branches. Strip it, strip off its foliage and scatter its fruit. Let the beasts flee from under it and the birds from its branches. Now the dream sounded good until the angelic watcher made this proclamation. Cut it down! Now, if Nebuchadnezzar's thinking, I'm the tree... It sounded good when you're producing fruit and little animals and birds are chirping and you're supplying the needs and you're tall and proud. But when you hear, chop it down, that's not a good sign. So if you're Nebuchadnezzar, it's something like this. I just like to make sure I'm not the tree. I'm not the tree, am I? <laughs> Tell me I'm not the tree. <laughs> Tell me what I want to hear. He was unnerved by another dream. Just like the dream when the rock came and smashed the statue and he was appalled and unnerved by it, this one has done the same. Yet, the angelic messenger, remember in Scripture, angels are reapers in Matthew 13, 9, 13, 39, and 40. They execute God's wrath all throughout the book of Revelation. So the angel shouts, chop it down. Yet 15 says, yet leave the stump with its roots in the ground, but with a band of iron and bronze around it in the new grass of the field. And let him, now notice it goes from the tree to a person, let him be drenched with the dew of heaven. Let him share with the beasts in the grass of the earth. The tree is going to be chopped down, branches cut, it's going to be stripped, and now the tree becomes a hymn. And whenever someone is tall and proud and maybe everything's going right 
and something goes amiss, something maybe bad happens, we almost feel like we got chopped down. We feel like we've lost a lot of things. That may be you tonight. Maybe, maybe things were going well at work. Maybe financially you were doing well. Maybe you were healthy. And all of a sudden, just something happened. Something turned. Something shifted. And you feel like, man, you've been cut off at the knees. You've been chopped down and you're no longer supplying others the way you used to. Or maybe your health's not what it once was. Or maybe spiritually, you're just feeling like you're not producing any fruit whatsoever. But it gets worse. It says in 16, and by the way, in 15, the band around the, the uh, stump is a guarantee that God will protect, protect what remains intact and preserve the king's rule. We'll see that in verse 26. And oftentimes when God does something in our life, even if it's a heavy cutting job, it's not to destroy us. It's to bring us back into something more beautiful and more productive. But the pruning process can be painful, and sometimes it doesn't make a lot of sense. Why would I cut back good fruit that's producing? Because it's going to produce more fruit. We can see that in John 15. It says, let his mind be changed, 16, from that of a man. Let a beast's mind be given to him. This was the inspiration for the story, Beauty and the Beast. I'm just kidding, it wasn't. At least I don't know that it was. And let seven periods of time pass over him. Most believe that seven years. Seven is the number of what? Completion or perfection. So it was going to take potentially seven years of insanity for Nebuchadnezzar to come to his senses. Sometimes everything has to be stripped away. So we can see who God is and that we're not God. And you might say, well, why would God do such a thing to a person to open their eyes to who God is? Because he has an eternal perspective unlike us who just think in temporary things. We don't think about eternity, but people are going into eternity at a very rapid rate just to remind you about one and a half to two people die Every second. Just ponder that for a second. Eternity is pretty important, right? Eternity is too long to be wrong about your soul. You ought to know where you're going when you exit stage left because you're going to unless Jesus comes in your lifetime. I often say to people at memorial services, often filled with unbelievers, the statistics on death are quite impressive. <laughs> and I usually get a little bit of a giggle. One out of every one of you is going to die. <laughs> you might want to make preparation for it. You can live in denial, but that's only a river in Egypt, not Babylon anyway. Sorry. Denial, yeah, anyway. You see... Jonah's in the belly of the great sea monster, and it says, after three days and three nights, Jonah prayed. That's Jonah 2.1. What do you mean, after three days and three nights? What was he doing for three days and three nights? How long would it take you to pray if you were in the belly of a sea monster? I'd say about half a second. Oh, Lord, get me out of here. Right? What do you mean three days and three nights? Now, there's some different points of view. Was he, did he die? Was he unconscious? Or was he just stubborn? <laughs> Remember, he didn't want to preach to those people to begin with. He ran the other way. How many times has it taken for you? Three days and three nights? Seven years? Still a work in progress? <laughs> Me too. So the sentence is by the decree 17 of, angelic, of the angelic watchers. The decision, they're carrying out the decision of God, is a command of the holy ones. Uh, Bible students, write down Jude 14, where it says the Lord is coming with, what is it, ten thousands of his holy ones. I think that's the language there. Um, the idea of holy ones is often rendered saints in the New Testament because holy is the word for saint. 
So it could speak of angels in those verses. And it says that the command of the holy ones, carrying out God's command, is in order that the what? That the living may know, middle of 17, that the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind. Heaven rules, and God wants the living to know it because the dead already know. Are you convinced of that? How many people, maybe just in your lifetime, clever so-called scientists, sophisticated philosophers, have entered into eternity, and now they know. But here's the question. Did they know before they go? (laughs) To use a rhyme. Did they know God? Jesus said, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. John 17, 3. You need to know God. We have a man who's been part of our church for many years, and he shared a testimony on the internet. He had a near-death experience. He, he was uh, dead clinically, I believe, seven minutes. Um, he describes a scenario. You can wrestle with this. But I've spoken to him directly, and he shared this on the internet, where he died, and he was not in a place that he would describe as heaven. He would say he was under judgment. And he came back, he was brought back, he got to tell his story, and he said that God's message to him, take this for what it's worth, was get to know me. And he said, that's what I'm doing. I'm getting to know him. The dead already know. Because once you leave this life, for a Christian to be absent from the body is to be what? At home with the Lord. For an unbeliever, we see a behind-the-scenes situation in Luke 16 where Jesus describes the poor beggar, Lazarus, and the rich man. They both die. They're buried. The poor beggar ends up in Abraham's bosom. Where's the rich man? He's in Hades. He lifts up his eyes. He cries out, Father Abraham, you know, send Lazarus to put some water on the end of my tongue. I'm in agony in this flame. And there's a dialogue. Son, in your life, you time you had your good things, Lazarus his bad things. Now he's comforted and you're in agony. And besides all this, there's a great gulf between the two of us fixed. We can't cross from us to you. You can't cross from you to us. This is fixed. No exits. No change of address. It's it. And it's a story from the lips of Jesus. Okay, well then, send send somebody to my five brothers. Lest they also come into this place of torment. Do you remember the response? From the lips of Jesus, speaking for Abraham. They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear him or them. No, but if somebody comes back from the dead, they'll believe. Will they? Jesus Christ was raised from the dead in the very history in which we are embedded. We have more evidence in antiquity for the resurrection of Jesus Christ than for any historical event in antiquity. And how many people are still rejecting the resurrection or coming up with goofy, silly arguments to somehow try to explain the facts? See, man is stubborn. And Nebuchadnezzar is about to be convinced that God is God. And so this is a key verse to understand the chapter in verse 17. The Most High, mark it, is ruler over the realm of mankind, and he bestows it on whom he wishes and sets over it the lowliest of men. Walter Martin, in his wonderful (laughs) style, said, God presides over all their funerals. They may get 60, 80 years, shake their fist at God, print t-shirts, God is dead. God prints his own t-shirt. Nietzsche is dead. You see, this is how it works. God is God, we are not. This is the dream which I, Nebuchadnezzar 18, have seen. Now you, Belteshazzar, tell me its interpretation. 
Inasmuch as none of the wise men of my kingdom is able to make known to me the interpretation, but you are able, for a spirit of the holy gods is in you. Then Daniel, whose name is Belteshazzar, was appalled for a while. King James says, for one hour. As his thoughts alarmed him, the king responded and said, Belteshazzar, do not let the dream or its interpretation alarm you. Belteshazzar answered and said, My lord, if only the dream applied to those who hate you and, and its interpretation to your adversaries. Now, Daniel knew what the dream meant, but he was troubled because ancient Eastern kings like this lived in a very protected environment. And for some, some of the records that we have say that you couldn't, as even a cupbearer, be sad in their presence. They didn't want any sadness. They didn't really want bad news. They wanted a protected environment. Fan me, feed me another grape. Fan me, feed me another grape. Tell me lies, tell me sweet little lies. I don't want any bad news. That was a song, Fleetwood Mac. And so Nebuchadnezzar knows that Daniel's a straight shooter and he sees him troubling and he's, it's kind of like when, when you know someone needs to tell you something, but they don't want to tell you something, and you go, just tell me. Just, just tell me. But you know, just by their facial expression, that the news is not going to be good, but you have to know. And so Daniel sets the table wisely, knowing that to give the king bad news could mean that he dies right on the spot. And so Daniel says, okay, okay, king, put your seatbelt on. <laughs> Sit down. Brace yourself. The tree that you saw, which became large, 20, grew strong, whose height reached to the sky, was visible to all the earth, whose foliage was beautiful, fruit abundant, in which was food for all, under which the beasts of the field dwelt, and whose branches the birds of the sky lodged. Yeah, 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 I know the dream. The tree is you. I knew it. Every time I get a dream like this, it's always about me. Couldn't it be about somebody else? You ever had someone come to you and say, I had a dream about you last night. My first response is, did I die? <laughs> what did you dream about? Don't ever tell somebody that and then hold back what the dream was unless you're embarrassed to share it. Or if you're on the receiving edge, just say, did I die? Did I die? Was there a calendar date? Were the circumstances revealed to you in which my demise happened? Were you there? Because if you were, I'm not hanging out with you anymore. <laughs> what was I driving? What was I wearing? I'll get rid of the car. I'll burn those clothes. What do I have to do? Just like years before, Daniel said, you are the head of gold. Now he says, you are the tree. <laughs> well, Nebuchadnezzar can figure out the rest. Tree was chopped down by order of an angelic watcher, some sort of bands put around it. Uh, this isn't good. And so he says, you're the, you're the tree. You become great. Or excuse me, let's go back. Uh, which became large, grew strong, height. Uh, verse 20, reached the sky, was visible to all the earth, whose foliage was beautiful, fruit abundant. Oh, we already did that, didn't we? You have become great, end of 22, grown strong. Your majesty has become great, reached to the sky, your dominion to the end of the earth. And in that the king saw an angelic watcher, a holy one, descending from heaven and saying, chop down the tree and destroy it, yet leave the stump with its root in the ground, but with a band of iron and bronze around it <clears throat> in the new grass of the field. Let him be drenched with the dew of heaven. Let him share with the beasts of the field until seven periods of time pass over him. This is the interpretation, O king. This is the decree of the Most High, which has come upon my Lord the King, that you be driven away from mankind, 25. Your dwelling place be with the beasts. Just a note, the Antichrist is called the beast in the book of Revelation. Uh, when we descend to be like the beast, we lose our sense of God. 
when we lack like act like animals, when we embrace the implications of Darwinian evolution, that's pretty much what we become. Sophisticated animals, right? So you'll be, uh, you'll have your place with the beasts of the field. You'll be given grass to eat like cattle. You'll be drenched with the dew of heaven. And seven periods of time will pass over you until you what? Until you recognize that the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows it on whomever he wishes. King, apparently you have not got the message from heaven yet, so God's given you another dream, and you're going to be chopped down and humbled. Psalm 32.9 says, Do not be as the horse or as the mule, which have no understanding, whose trappings include bit and bridle to hold them in check. Otherwise, they will not come near to you. In Acts 26, 14, Jesus said to Saul of Tarsus, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. You're acting like an animal. You're acting like an ox. You're kicking against the goads. And every time you kick it, more of your flesh is taken away. Why do you fight me? Why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. What do I do? Get up, and you'll be told what you must do. And he had to be held by the hand. Saul of Tarsus, proud Pharisee, humbled to the ground, knocked off his high horse because he was fighting Jesus. In the name of God. He had letters from the high priest. He wanted to shut down what he thought was a false Messiah and its movement. But deep down, maybe Saul knew all the while. Maybe he knew Jesus was the Messiah. Maybe that's why Jesus said to him, why are you fighting me? Why are you persecuting me? I'll leave it to you. And in that, it was commanded to leave the stump with its roots of the tree. Your kingdom will be assured or restored to you after you recognize that it is heaven that rules. Now, what would you do if your King Nebuchadnezzar, all right, that's, that's tough news. Wouldn't your next question be, what do I need to do to avoid this calamity? Wouldn't you want the prophet of God to lay it out for you? Wouldn't you want some sort of maybe to-do list? Well, maybe it's implied because Daniel says, Therefore, O king, may my advice be pleasing to you. Accept what I'm going to say. Break away now from your sins by doing righteousness and from your iniquities, by showing mercy to the poor in case that there may be a prolonging of your prosperity. Bold move by Daniel. Here's simple interpretation. Nebuchadnezzar, repent. Now there are people who say, oh, in the history of the revelation of the Bible, we got to be careful because, you know, Prophets and Christians and so forth, they haven't, they haven't had much impact on government and policy and stuff like that. Well, you might want to mark Daniel 4.27, where Daniel in the court of Babylon tells Nebuchadnezzar to repent of his sin. Pretty bold. Repent, king. Get right with God. Do what's right in his eyes. He's shown you, O oh man, what is good and what the Lord requires of you. It's to do justice, Micah 6.8, to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. But for Nebuchadnezzar, it wasn't about a to-do list. Please hear what I'm about to say. It was about a new heart. Jesus said to Nicodemus, you must be what? Born again. This is not about a building. It's not about what you wear, what you eat, what you drink, what you don't drink, what days you worship, when you fast, when you don't. You must be born from above. Heaven must invade your hearts. This is the message of the gospel. Religion will not do it. You must know the God who made you. And Nebuchadnezzar has certainly had some experience with God. He's seen God's majesty. He's seen God's power. But he has not yet come into a saving relationship with him. And by the way, Old and New Testament is the same. 
You believe in the Lord and you get righteousness. Whether it's this side of the cross in the Old Testament or this side of the cross in the New Testament, what you know about Messiah or about God, you must place faith in the living God. And so he got the word from Daniel, very bold, but true. All this happened to Nebuchadnezzar the king. Now, if you were a fly on the wall or you one of, you're one of Nebuchadnezzar's advisors or you're somehow in the palace, would you be watching him now? If you found out that there was this whole thing laid out about the tree chopped down and Nebuchadnezzar's going to turn into a, a member of a 70s rock band, he, he's going to have long nails, long hair, the whole deal. Wouldn't you be kind of wondering, what's he going to do? You know, is he, is he going to ask for more information about how to get right? Twelve months later, fast forward 29, Nebuchadnezzar's walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. There he is, up on the roof, checking things out. A year has gone by. There's another story about another man walking on his roof, and he saw a woman bathing. We studied it recently. And his cover-up, most scholars believe, in the, from the time that Bathsheba's pregnant to when everything unravels is about a year in David's life. God gives Nebuchadnezzar a year to get right. Here's Ecclesiastes 8.11. It says, Because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed quickly, therefore the hearts of the sons of men among them are fully given fully to do evil. 1 Corinthians 11.31 says, If we judge ourselves rightly, we shall not be judged. But when we are judged, we are disciplined by the Lord in order that we may not be condemned along with the world. Revelation 21, excuse me, Revelation 2.21 says of Jezebel, I gave her time to repent. <clears throat> and she does not want to repent of her immorality. And we have verses in 2 Peter and Genesis 6 that say, at least imply, and I think this is correct, that as Noah built the ark, God gave mankind 120 years to repent and believe. 120 years. Years. Some of you pray for somebody for a week. <laughs> ah, they're never going to come to church. But God is patient toward us. He's not willing that any perish, but all come to repentance. So he knocks, and the ark's being built, and he tries to get our attention. And a year goes by. And the king's walking on his balcony, and he reflected, and he said, is this not... Babylon the Great, which I myself have built as a royal residence by the might of my power and for the glory of my majesty. Write that down. That sounds pretty good. Write that down. He's out. And by the way, Babylon has existed long before Nebuchadnezzar, right? We have, we have Babel way back in Genesis 10. Babylon's been around as an empire for a long time. Nebuchadnezzar's father ruled it before he did. And just a side note, Rodney Stortz in a commentary on Daniel believes that this is Nabonidus or Nabonidus who was a ruler who came afterwards. There is a record that in his life, and I'm trying to remember the dates, but it's, it's coming towards the early part of uh, the 500, so 535, somewhere in there, where he disappeared for seven years and nobody knew what happened to him. There's some sort of secular record. So he believes he carried the title of Nebuchadnezzar, but it's a different one. Um, I'm not necessarily convinced of that, but I just thought I'd let you know. And so the king's walking on his balcony, and he's basically saying, I'm all that. Look what I've done. Look what I've created. Look at this Babylon that I've built. And while he's saying, look what I've done, God's in heaven saying, look what I'm about to do. <laughs> Whenever you say, look what I've done, God might say to you, really? What you've done? Now, it's true that God allows us to work and accomplish things and to be inventive and creative. But look, 
We would have nothing unless it had been first given to us from heaven. Why do you boast about the things that you have, 1 Corinthians 4, 7, as though they were from you when they're not? The very breath in your lung, lungs, we'll learn in chapter 5, is from God. He holds your very life breath in his hands. Remember King Herod in Acts 12? He comes out in his royal robe, sits on his royal throne, and the people say, this is the voice of a God, not of, of a man. And immediately an angel of the Lord struck him because he did not give glory to God. And he was eaten by worms and died. <laughs> Acts 12. Uh, if you're on a diet, this is a good verse to read right before you're tempted to eat anything. <laughs> but it says, but the word of the Lord continued to grow and multiply. Whenever we want to pat ourselves on the back. There's an old saying, let somebody else do it. Nebuchadnezzar, look what I've done. Now, in light of his dream, don't you think he would have been a little careful about pontificating like this? While the word was in the king's mouth, a voice came from heaven. Now, We've heard a voice from heaven at Jesus' baptism on the Mount of Transfiguration. Here's the voice of God from heaven saying, King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is declared sovereignty has been removed from you. Maybe parenthetically, remember the dream I gave you a year ago? Did you forget the dream and the interpretation? You'll be driven away from mankind. Your dwelling place will be with the beasts of the field. You will be given grass to eat like cattle. Seven periods of time will pass over you until you recognize that the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows it on whomever he wishes. And immediately the word concerning Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled. He was driven away from mankind. He began eating grass like cattle. His body was drenched with the dew of heaven until his hair had grown like eagle's feathers and his nails like bird's claws. You remember the old, uh, what is the stick that people try to go under? How low can you go? How low can you go? Pretty low. I mean, when you're out in the field and you're the, you used to be the king and you got some feathers and some long nails, you got them painted in different colors, you know, and you're there with the, Hey, where's the king today? Get your binoculars out. <laughs> I mean, folks, this is it. This is about as humiliating as it gets. From your balcony saying, the great Babylon that I have built to. <laughs> That's going from the penthouse to whatever house would be out there. <laughs> History corroborates this event in the life of Nebuchadnezzar. Dr. William Newell has this note from Albert Barnes. Josephus attributes to the Babylonian historian Barassus a definite reference concerning a strange malady suffered by Nebuchadnezzar before his death. He was driven from the palace into the fields in the way. Presumably... Uh, something added by uh, either Wearsby or Boyce. Uh, presumably that they treated the insane in those days. He went bananas. He went cuckoo. He went mad. There's the king out there, and he's lost it. And God's behind it. But at the end of that period... Now remember, this is all autobiographical. Very honest, right? Very transparent. I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes toward heaven. <laughs> he went, God, <laughs> help. This is almost like the prodigal in the pig pen, isn't it? He, he's eating, he desires to eat the, the pig's food, and he says, wait a minute, hold on. He came to his senses. What does it take to get us to come to our senses? For some, maybe more than others. He raised, he says, I raised my eyes toward heaven. My reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High. 
and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is everlasting, and everlasting dominion, his kingdom endures from generation to generation. Looking up to heaven seems to be a sign of the acknowledgement of God's sovereignty. Okay, you are the true king. I am not. You are the most high. I am not. You are the sovereign God. I am not. I surrender. (laughs) I don't want to be in the field anymore. Long enough. I get it. I give up. One author says, His reason returned to him. We are to understand that this was not only in a mental sense, but also in a spiritual sense. He recognized the truth of things coming to what we would call genuine repentance. What does it take to get there? And he says, All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. He, God, does according to his will in the host of heaven among the inhabitants of the earth. No one can ward off his hand or say to him, What hast thou done? At that time my reason returned to me. My majesty and splendor were restored to me for the glory of my kingdom. My counselors and my nobles began seeking me out. And so I was reestablished in my sovereignty. And surpassing greatness was added to me. Can I say something to you? If God has humbled you in the last six months or a year or more, His intention is not to leave you as a stump. His intention is to bring you in communion with him so you can become a beautiful tree that's bearing spiritual, abundant, abiding fruit. And the last word from Nebuchadnezzar, he says, Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise, exalt, and honor the king of heaven. For all his works are true, his ways just, and he is able to humble those who walk in pride. As Jesus said in Luke 18, 14, everyone who exalts himself shall be humbled, but he who humbles himself shall be exalted. Um, Shane, if you can hear my voice, come on up. I'm going to just close with a quote from A.W. Tozer. It says this, The Most High God is so wise and powerful that he can ordain that his creatures have the freedom to make decisions and even disobey his revealed will. Yet he can accomplish his divine purposes on this earth. Man's will is free because God is sovereign. A God less than sovereign could not bestow moral freedom upon his creatures. He would be afraid to do so. But God in his sovereignty allows us to be free moral agents. But I have to say, there's a little fence around your freedom. (laughs) In other words, your freedom can have its limits. God has given you free will, but he loves you so much, sometimes he'll only let you go so, so far so you'll come to know him. Don't fight him. Don't keep having to learn lessons the hard way. Don't end up like old Debbie in the field. <laughs> Now's the time to raise your eyes to heaven and say, Lord, you are God. I'm not. I don't understand everything, but I'm going to trust you and serve you. Amen? Father, we are grateful for this passage of Scripture. It's humbling for us. Because I think all of us have tasted grass before. We've been humbled. We've we've ended up in a place that maybe we didn't want to be. And all the while, you were there. Now, I will say in this prayer, Lord, in your sovereignty and in giving free will and in a fallen world, we don't always know the causes of things and we don't always know what's behind every malady and time that we go through difficulty. We can't say for sure. But we know that you can exploit everything for your good purposes. And sometimes when we're at our lowest and we're going through a test or a trial, 
we, we are put in a unique spot to have nothing else but you. And I'm going to confess for anyone who will listen to this or is listening now, I don't like it. But often you strip things away and you prune and you do your work because you love me and because you want me to produce what will really last. So Father, I know I'm speaking some words to some hearts tonight because I know we can all relate to this. Help us in those moments and if we're there right now, help us if we're feeling like we're, we're right there and we have nothing else, if everything's been stripped away and we've been brought low, whatever the cause, may our eyes look to heaven, may we come to our spiritual senses and may we seek you and find you because we know you're not far from each one of us. Would you keep your head and heart bowed? If you've not met Jesus or maybe you're at a point where, man, it's just been a tough season and you're feeling pretty low, but you know heaven's gaze has not left you. And you just want to cry out to him and say, Lord, heal me. I, I believe you're God. That simple. I trust you. Maybe if you're an unbeliever tonight, it's something like this. Thank you for sending Jesus to that cross to show me your love. Thank you that he humbled himself and died on that awful tree for me. Thank you that he shed his blood and rose from the dead to bring me life. If you haven't made it official, if you've never trusted him, if you've gone through three days and three nights or seven seasons or whatever it may be and you haven't yet yielded your life, you, you don't know that you know him. Tonight can be your night. But you must come to your spiritual senses and, and it may be that you need to repent of something that you've been holding on to because you didn't want to let it go. Even though God warned and he brought messages to you, you, you fought him. And now you're ready to release whatever that thing is so that you might be right with him. A good place to start is, Lord, I repent of that. And I receive you as my Lord and my Savior, my King and my friend. Father, for those who are trying to articulate the right words from their hearts, you know every heart. May you bless. May you pour out your spirit. May you bring refreshment. May your love and your goodness and your grace just abound to every life. You're opposed to the proud, it's true, but you give grace to the humble. And those who are humbling themselves right now, may they experience a river of grace like they've never known before. In Jesus' name I pray.